is my friend Alex Finman, and I am proud to call him a friend. We met back before he was fired from the Trump White House when he was ringing the alarm bells about Trump and Giuliani and their ridiculous scam trying to suborn the Ukrainian government to attack Joe Biden. We have been friends ever since. He has been a guy who has vocally spoken out against the Putin-led war in Ukraine. He has vocally spoken out in favor of America's role in leading in NATO and in the world. He is a guy who has served this country as an immigrant to this nation his entire life. He is recently completing his PhD defense at Johns Hopkins University. And Alex Vindman is with us today on the enemies list. There was also maintained what was called an enemies list. Democrats want Republicans dead. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. The women with the least likelihood of getting pregnant are the ones most worried about having abortions. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying um, it's declassified. It's not a right-wing conspiracy theory. It's not QAnon. It's real. <laughs> I'm Rick Wilson, and this is The Enemies List. Alex Vindman, thank you so much for being with us on the enemies list today. Oh. Just wanted to catch up, see how you've been, get a little bit of a read on where you're at in the world, and talk about one of the subjects of which you are one of the most knowledgeable individuals in the country, and that would be Ukraine. So I guess we'll start there. Um, what do you see the state of play is right now in the, um, in the, in the, in the now almost a year of conflict between uh, Vladimir Putin and Russia and, uh, and Ukraine? Thanks, Rick, for having me on um, enemies list. Does that mean I'm an enemy or who's on this list? I don't, I don't know, but you know, I'm happy to see you as always. Uh, no, man, the, the the people the people at the end of the show are on the enemies list. Got, You're in the beginning it. of the show. Got it. <laughs> Thanks for having me on, Rick. A year on, it's kind of amazing. I think that's one of the things I'm going to try to do over the course of the next probably four weeks, in the four weeks before the one year anniversary of of the war of Russia's war against Ukraine is kind of do a little bit of um, stock taking and, uh, you know, reflect on on where I've been wrong, where I've been right, um, how the U.S. government's been performing. Uh, one thing that's clear is U Ukraine's been uh, amazing uh, and really has, has been a lifesaver for most of the, the world and the rules-based international order. And also clear is how poorly Russia's performed over the course of the past year. But I think it's really, frankly, a mixed bag on uh, Western support to Ukraine. There are certain successes. Undoubtedly, we've managed to maintain um, consensus uh, amongst the democracies. Right. That's, that's no small feat. Uh, we've managed to move the reluctant allies that, you know, were were kind of waving away or dismissing the threat Russia posed towards a more appropriate baseline of uh, of Russia as a threat as a threat actor, but there's still a way to go and a huge divide between the Eastern European countries that you know perceive an immediate threat, <clears throat> a clear and present danger, and and Western Europe that would love to get back to business as usual, and I'd say the U.S. also uh, we've managed to avoid. 
uh, a spillover, a significant spillover. Of course, we've had spillover in terms of economic warfare, political warfare, informational warfare. We just haven't gotten to to a hot war yet. That's that's a, a great thing. But I think, frankly, that was always a mirage that the Russians were ever going to provoke a direct confrontation with NATO and manifest an existential regime change, a uh, regime threatening crisis. Uh, so, you know, the administration, the Biden administration will take credit for that. But I think that was always a mirage. And we could have done more to avoid uh, this war dragging on a year, likely going into a full second year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, the, these are things that I'm going to be thinking about. I'll be better positioned to answer the question uh, in about a month. I'd probably write something on it, but th- that's my current uh, thought on the on the situation. Uh, you know, one of the things that I wanted to, uh, we were, when I, we were talking about doing this interview, I wanted to ask you is obviously your background, your 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 life is intertwined with with Ukraine, and the question I really wanted to get to was: Did you expect this level of resilience with the Ukrainian people? Because a lot of folks, the day the day the tanks rolled. It was this sort of like Washington, uh, the Washington conventional wisdom was sort of, well, you know, okay, they'll fight for a few weeks, but it's Russia and they're going to get defeated. Did you expect the resilience? I mean, even before the Western, uh, you know, rearmament of of Ukraine, uh, they were fighting at a a level, I think, that shocked. That's absolutely true. You know, this is my area of expertise. Over the past two years, I was working on my doctoral thesis uh, for Johns Hopkins which I just which I just finished defending, and it's on the topic of a U.S. policy towards Russia and Ukraine. So it was a deep dive, a deep study of the region, of the our interactions with the region, and in spite of uh, kind of a really almost a unique level of expertise, not just uh, the political side but the military side of the equation, it's pretty amazing mm-hmm. how well the Ukrainians have performed. I wrote about this uh, just, you know, almost a year ago, actually, you know, this week will be a year ago about the fact that this would be a full scale war. Russia would launch a full scale offensive to snatch up the whole country. And I think I couched the the, uh, results as a protracted war, Russia unable to, to seize the entirety of the country. But frankly, with Russia securing larger gains and more kind of insurgency, counterinsurgency, run out of the Western portion of the country. The Russians didn't get anywhere near that far. So in spite of uh, understanding, you know, in a lot of ways, the fact that the Russians uh, were made out to be 10 feet tall and they weren't, and that the um, Ukrainians would be crushed, it was still really hard to assess how, how, um, how this kind of equation has been so unbalanced, opposite of uh, what almost everybody had assessed it to be. Uh, and you know you'll get a lot of hindsight. Yeah, uh, you'll have a lot of Monday morning quarterbacking, saying, "Well, you know, the Ukrainians will even do it." They'll say, "You know, we expected this uh, this war to happen. We are ready for it." But in fact, that wasn't true. The political leadership said there wasn't going to be a war, and the military leadership didn't mobilize. So there'll be a lot of recasting of, of history. But what's absolutely clear is that the Ukrainians were a formidable foe, vastly underestimated by everybody, mm-hmm. no more so than by Russia and its deep chauvinism about about its own power and who the Ukrainians were. And the the price has been tens of thousands of, of killed. By Ukrainian estimates, over a hundred thousand Russians killed and two or three times that much 
probably two times that uh, in terms of wounded by by their own estimates. Uh, it's a it's a, an a enormous figure and probably off by by tens of thousands, but that's still an amazing, amazing sure, number. Sure. Well, I I do think that the the cost of this war for Russia was something that both Russia underestimated and Western analysts underestimated that they would. I keep coming back to this. It's like they're buying artillery shells from North Korea now and drones from Iran. And it seems to me, I mean, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong on this, but it strikes me that their, their inventory of drones, cruise missiles, smart weapons is they've, they've burned through it at an astounding rate and, and they've burned through their tank inventory at an astounding rate. I mean, as one of those young cold warriors who looks back on the, you know, the, the, the times we feared they would come racing through the fold of gap. The, I don't know what the Russian word for paper tiger is, but the, it seems like that Ukraine has been a, a, an area that really did put the lie to that, the power of Soviet massed armor, a Russian massed, see how old I am, of Russian massed armor and their special operators and, and, and their, and their yeah. air power. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, folks, there are always things people need to get off their chests. We carry around a lot of stress in this world. Some of it's big, some of it's small, but all of it, if we keep it bottled up, can affect our health in a negative way. Therapy is a safe place to get things off your chest, to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down, to learn how to deal with those stresses. I know so many people who've benefited so much from therapy. They find a safe place where they can talk about the challenges in their life, where they can learn positive coping skills, they can learn how to set boundaries, and they can learn how to assess what's happening in their world in a way that makes them that better version of themselves. Therapy isn't just for people who've been through trauma or suffered a loss. It's for everyone. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Make your brain your friend with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Wilson today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Wilson. One of the things that concerned me is uh, the paramilitary forces inside Russia are, are also, you know, uh, a, a large, large force, hundreds of thousands of troops. And I thought that they'd be in a mm-hmm. position to mm-hmm. kind of roll uh, roll in and even in the areas that they secured, potentially just brutally suppress um, counterinsurgencies, uh, suppress any resistance. And that's not really happened either, although they've been very, very brutal. So there's a lot of barrages, uh, whether it's air power whether it's you know the the mass, whether it's the, the technical capabilities of the force, shouldn't be underestimated by any means. There are some, there are definitely lesser militaries sure. would not have matched up as well. I mean, it just turns out that the Ukrainian right. military was right. formidable, and for the first, let's say almost the first six months, it was they did it on their own, pretty close to it. Yeah, uh, and I then think that's only right. later did they start right. getting equipment. And it's still only really trickling in. But that's probably one of the stories here. Uh, It's also pretty amazing. Clearly, Putin thought that this was going to be a system-changing war, a low-cost system-changing war that would balance the scales in Russia's favor. Russia, you know, firmly entrenched as a great power or something close to a great power, Mm -hmm. secured by minimal expenditures, minimal blood, over the course of you know days and weeks, <clears throat> instead this is a system-changing war in a different kind of way, extremely costly for Russia, 
system changing in that Russia right. as a uh, entrenched uh, spoiler, as entrenched, uh, um, you know, kind of evildoer is going to be greatly diminished. And in a lot of ways, you could see the the uh, telltale signs. I mean, we're way f- uh, far away from uh, the collapse of the Putin regime or the end of the Russian Federation. But you could see the telltale signs, the precursors right. of something like that. And again, that's in blood. That's in mm-hmm. the, the isolation from the uh, from you know basically the developed markets and, and the developed world. Uh, that's the enormous expenditures that Russia is going to pour in to continue this war. Uh, you know, something on the order of what uh, many times bigger <clears throat> than let's say the um, Soviet Union did for Afghanistan, which was a limited regional war. Right. This is on a whole different kind of scale. And it basically, you know, contributed to the bank corrupting the country. There were a lot of other factors there. You know, there was, it was stag- a stagnation was was a, already a condition uh, in the Soviet Union. But mm-hmm. all these precursors, you could see those starting to kind of brew up into something that really does eventually change uh, the dynamics in Eurasia and threaten the regime. And this is early, but you, it's there, and it's very, very different than you know what everybody expected. The U.S thought that they would have to deal with a Russia that uh, ha- is ex- expanding its power, acquiring territory, expanding its military base, and uh, acting as a bigger spoiler. And that's not the case, again, okay. due to the fortitude of the Ukrainians. Yeah, I think that Putin's desire for a sort of career-capping, you know, a final expansion to go back to that old Russian, you know, dream of having hegemony over the uh, over eastern europe or beyond it it really did it, it really ukraine really was the worst possible country to go up against in a lot of ways they they really had a, a, i think he as as the west has been surprised that zelensky's leadership and i it's funny i was just reviewing the rudy giuliani documentary and i said in that documentary that you know zelensky has turned out to be a much more important leader historically than 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 trump was even though Trump and Rudy tried their best to use Zelensky and use Ukraine as a as a as a pawn in their presidential races, Zelensky has really turned out to bat way above expectations, hasn't he? I think that's right, but that's because in part Trump is a is a kind of a caricature of a villain, and uh, there's yes. really not too mm-hmm. much uh, to him. And history will just you know basically remember him as a, as a caricature of a villain that almost wrecked the United States, whereas the complexities right. of, of somebody like Zelensky that through his own kind of force of will, you know, a testament to the importance of individual actors uh, on, on a geopolitical uh, stage is likely to shape the 21st century in a way that's going to be fa- far more friendly to, you know, um, liberalist ideals, kind of democracy, um, right. Pluralism, the, the the idea of all all prosper, all parties could prosper. Uh, you, know, mm-hmm. you don't always have to maximize gains and things of that nature. And he will be a much much more important right. figure in that. The, but my fears, though, are that this is starting to increasingly shape up as a you know quite a, quite a long war. I thought we would be getting to the place where by late spring, early summer, uh, Russia would be a spent force and be forced to kind of start to negotiate in earnest. And this could still be right. a years-long negotiation uh, with Putin trying to claw, claw out, uh, retaining some of the territories that are occupied, most importantly, Crimea, retaining Crimea. But mm-hmm. 
what's shaping up now is is a mobilization, another mobilization. The first round resulted in 300,000 uh, uh, troops being mobilized. It uh, looks like Russia burnt through about half of that force. And now they're looking to do another mobilization, potentially in, in January and February, with troops being available mm. in, let's say, you know, mid-spring or so for an offensive. And that's going to play out over the course of the summer, at, at least. So this could drag out easily t- towards the end of this year, just as in a kind of a full-fledged right. hot war. And particularly dangerous, because Russia's going to go with a, the whole formula of throwing enough bodies and human waves atta- uh, wave attacks to uh, overwhelm Ukraine. And that's probably not a, uh, um, go- going to be a fruitful scenario, mainly because Russia has burned through so much equipment, is uh, running low on, on ammunition supplies. But it's a recipe for, you know, for, for potential disaster also, especially if the U.S. and the West don't get their act together and they don't open up the floodgates. Do you remember, like, you know... What would you... I, I was just going to say... What would you say is the most? Oh, go, I was go, go, say, go, Remember go, back go in like you know the March timeframe and the April timeframe. I I wrote about this. The whole uh, lend lease thing was passed as legislation. Mm-hmm, it was supposed mm-hmm. to open up the floodgates. There was going to be all sorts of stuff prepositioned. Where what happened to that? I mean, it was like a token effort, uh, yeah. a fig leaf of support, and it never materialized. Mm-hmm. When Ukraine, in fact, does need planes, tanks, air defense capabilities, drones. Anything and everything that that could we could provide them in order to uh, weather the coming assaults and liberate territory and end this war instead of having it drag on for for years and becoming increasingly dangerous for the U.S. So, Alex, here here's a, a question that you, as a as a former military officer and an expert on this 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 war and this country, would would be well positioned to answer. What is it? What would be the what would be the game changer at this point? To flood the zone with what would be something if you if you were if you were you know th- th- at, at the National Security Council and the president said show me the show me the money what are we doing here what's the thing that's going to change this ball game the most what would it be I, w- I would say a, a mental reformat that lifts all re- remaining prohibitions on weapon systems and gives the Ukrainians mm-hmm. e- everything and every uh, anything and everything that they need and I'll explain that in a little more detail and the the logistics to support it. Because there was a saying amongst military right. folks, you know, basically, oh, yes, <laughs> is for for amateurs. Logistics is for the professionals. Logistics for pros. And we have yeah. fallen so far short on logistics. This is a project I've been working in earnest since August. Why is there a prohibition on defense contractors? This is not military personnel. This doesn't break the president's prohibition on troops on the ground. But we fought our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan with tens of thousands of contractors in support of U.S. troops. Sure. Ukraine probably only needs a tenth of that. They need in the hundreds of contractors to keep to repair all their equipment. Mm-hmm. Right now, the, the things that we've provided uh, for them, you know, there are some pretty awful estimates that say that half of what we provided to a form has been is no longer operational or worse. Not because of mismanagement, but things break down. They break down even more quickly in combat. Right, we've been using they've been they've been using this stuff like the HIMARS systems at a at a blitz tempo. The exactly entire time. right, and you need basic maintenance. You need replacement parts, and the fact that we have not provided this capability and are resistant to doing so, and this is not speculation. This is direct kind of. I know, uh, right? From, yep, from yep. the defense leadership that we are, we are, we have a 
de facto prohibition on defense contractors in country is disgusting that we're doing that on and it's right. why right. is it disgusting it's not because it's a deep fear about casual uh, about let's say an esca uh, risk of escalation that the russians will find this to be the reason to launch attacks on nato it is a much much more base political calculation if u.s casualties if there are u.s casualties in country it is going to look bad on camera and we're mm -hmm. talking about a system changing war and the fact that we're not prepared to you know take all the force protection measures required and there are plenty of things we could do russia is a one-trick pony with regards to drones and cruise missile strikes you could harden against that right and the, the fact that we're not doing that is deeply troubling on the weapon side of the equation specifically we should have been uh, we should have been training ukrainian pilots on f-16s f-15s yep and any other platforms that we we would even think about offering months ago we have we I'm not, I mean, there's, there have been rumors about uh, training programs, but frankly, my, uh, my uh, assessment is that there hasn't been anything like this. We should be training them on helicopters. Mm -hmm. We should be training them on tanks. We should tra be training them on advanced drones. We should be training them on, you know, we should have been training them on, for, for months now on uh, air defense capabilities, Patriots and uh, NASAMs and things of that nature. And the fact that we're not right. doing that is... Is, is a problem. It's a major problem. And that's where we need to be. As a listener to this podcast, you know democracy is in danger in America and beyond. This titanic challenge requires a powerful response. And that's why Resolute Square was founded. The Enemies List is part of the Resolute Square family. We're a pro-democracy network. The Enemies List is just one part of Resolute Square's pro-democracy content and coverage. Our members get particularly exciting benefits. Exclusive live roundtable discussions with me, Joe Trippi, Reed Galen, Stuart Stevens, and Tara Setmayer. In those discussions, you can ask us questions directly, as if you are in the room at a campaign strategy session. In these sessions, we'll give folks answers on how to fight back against the crazy, how to push back against the MAGA media, and how to communicate effectively in the battle for our democracy. We're building a new arsenal for democracy, and we could use your support. Head over to ResoluteSquare.com enemies to let the world know where you stand. Well, it certainly seems like the Patriot missiles are finally going to be sent into, into the theater, which I think, yes. I think can have a pretty meaningful, that's going to shut down the, even for the Russian standoff weapons at that point, um, you know, that have a 300 kilometer range or so that they're yeah. basically firing from over the border at that point, when Patriots in the ball game, I think at that point, you know, that's going to shut down a lot of their desire to, uh, to risk their Sorry, remaining no. airframes. Kind of. I would say this. I would put it this way. Um, Patriots offer a different kind of capability. They're particularly good against ballistic trajectories. Yep. I mean, they'll, they're good at cruise missiles. They're going to be good at drones, but they're good. They're going to be particularly good at like ballistic trajectories. So these um, air defense missiles that they're using in a ground attack role, these S 300s and S 400s, mm -hmm. they'll be good at knocking those down. They'll potentially be able to knock down some of the um, other short range Right. ballistic missiles like the Iskandra systems. Mm -hmm. The problem is that I think, you know, Russia has has dwindling supplies of uh, of Iskanders, has dwindling supplies of, of cruise missiles. Uh, it's going to, it's lost a lot of drones over this war, but it, Russia still has a lot of S-300s, has a fair yeah. number of S-400s. And what the Russians are going to do is, you know, when they need to, they'll just overwhelm the limited capabilities that we've provided to Ukraine until there's a layered 
integrated air defense system. It's called right. IADS. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just a, a concept uh, where you put you have different layers of air defense systems. That's when you you basically clear the skies of a Russian threat. But until they have a density, a sufficient density, they're not going to get there. And, and it, one Patriot battery from the U.S. and one Patriot battery from Germany is not going to cut it. You know, mm -hmm. we're talking about bat uh, battalions the next level up three times the size. Right. We need a couple of uh, battalions of those things. They're expensive. Mm -hmm. We need underneath that. We need layered NASAM systems to go into place. Right. We need the, the French version of this, the SAMPTs. We need a whole bunch of different things kind of layered together. Uh, and that is going to be what's going to clear the skies of Russian threats. And, uh, you know, then Ukraine could really get back to the business of, you know, operating somewhat normally. You, you might even see flights in and out of the country eventually when with this kind of layered air defense system. Um, it, you know, and that that's probably still six months away. Right. So the other question that, that's been making a lot of news lately is the role that the that the, the, the the European allies are finally providing uh, modern armor. Uh, leopard tanks, et cetera, leopard twos, et cetera. How much of a difference do you think that's going to make on the battlefield? And are the Ukrainian troops now well-trained enough to put those to work in a way that's going to, that's going to, you know, continue this, this devastation of anti-armor? I mean, the Russian, Russian, the, 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 the Russian obsession, as you well know, with, with armor in European combat was, it was center to their, to their strategic planning for generations and sure. and now even T90s are getting you know popped off on the battlefield by you know you, you've got a multi-million ruble T90 getting taken out by a $50,000 handheld you know anti-tank yeah. missile. So yeah. what do you think the arrival of modern armor from the from the NATO allies is going to be? Sure. For, uh, and the the T90Ms, the modernized T90s, mm -hmm. these are multi-million dollar tanks, not multi-million yeah. ruble tanks. So yeah. you know that these are <laughs> So far, there are not going to be. I've not seen any indications that leopards are going to be going to the fight. Challengers, the UK Challenger twos, uh, which are you know Western modern tanks, mm -hmm. are, are going to go in. There aren't a huge number of them, uh, but you know they're going to get us what they call a squadron or fourteen tanks. We'd call them a company, um, and that's you know by itself, it's it, you need to build a, like basically a, a, almost like a if you're playing football, you need a you need to have a play in order to use use those effectively. Because there are simply not enough of them to kind of piecemeal them throughout the force and, and use them to have multiple breakthroughs. You'd probably want to con concentrate all those in one area, right. make one sure there's air yeah. power and support, there's infantry and support. What I think for the time being, these are still kind of niche systems. What you really need to do is you probably need to build a tip of the spear kind of main effort, uh, mechanized armored brigade. Mm -hmm. So that means like, you know, a battalion, uh, the next level up from that that uh, squadron would be a battalion. So you need a battalion of tanks. Then you need a couple battalions of Bradleys, like what ones that we're providing or the equivalents that the Europeans are providing. Uh, and you need basically all that concentrated in one area, along with high Mars, along with um, artillery. Uh, unfortunately, right. air power is not going to be part of the mix because we haven't offered air power. But you would want to see like attack helicopters in there. Because attack helicopters, especially U.S. attack helicopters, are particularly effective at punching holes in, uh, you know, what would be the Russian fortifications. Uh, right. Either these would be like hard point, you know, bunkers or uh, more than likely tanks that, that are dug in. And U.S. U.S. helicopters would be quite effective at knocking those out. But you need to build a concept on uh, as to how to employ all this stuff. 
in order to have a significant breakthrough. And then you would have more of the Russian uh, correction, the Ukrainian conventional forces, you know, echelon behind to exploit some of these breakthroughs. And every every time you hit like a tough bit of resistance, you'd push that the Western equipment forward. It'd break through that resistance and you would exploit it with the Ukrainian systems. And right. I could see that, you know, uh, I could this is speculation, but I could see that being a particularly effective tactic to use in uh, areas that like in that eastern direction of towards Mariupol and Melitopol, having a breakthrough there, that would completely throw the Russian defensive lines off balance. That would be significant. But by itself, uh, you know, I, I find it hard to imagine a major that being a major kind of contribution. They have the pieces, you know, the building blocks for it, but they, they need more. They need, you know, at least three times more of this kind of stuff in order to okay. uh, really effectively employ it. So, you know, I, I guess that, that that takes me to the next question. And and folks, I, I hope that I hope you guys all understand that we may be nerding out a little bit on the systems and the and the outcomes, but all of this is really a, a conversation that I think is a, a big important thing in the world about how do you protect a Western leaning democracy in an era where an authoritarian like Vladimir Putin has decided he's gonna play by rules that violate, you know, all the rules of war. And essentially run a run a, a military campaign that's that's war crime centric because I mean Alex that is that is the bigger question here isn't it it's that this fight may be about Russia and Ukraine on one level but it's really about you know a, a stable global future um, in a, in a world where uh, alliances like NATO can play a role in stabilizing uh, against impulsive and authoritarian countries like Russia absolutely but uh, to, to kind of on that nerd out point. You remember that scene, scene in uh, Saving Private Ryan where Ted Danson and Tom Hanks are on the beach? Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was Omaha Beach, and they're like, you know, they're they're two like two brilliant guys, basically take mapping out the rest of the war. So that uh, we're not right. that good. That's that's part <laughs> right. of this in my mind. Um, so in terms of um, next year in Moscow, <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. So then you know, I I would imagine that uh, yeah. To me, it's clear that this is a system-changing war, mainly uh, to U.S. detriment. Like, for instance, if Ukraine were to be successful and to liberate its territories, it would introduce, uh, it would not necessarily kind of, it would further advance the decline of Russia. Russia is already in an advanced state of decline because of this war. It would further advance it, but it would still be kind of a somewhat of a regional impact. Um, you know, the U.S. would have to deal with contingencies. What happens if sure. portions of Russia start start to break up? Uh, and I don't think the whole country is is at risk, but there are certain regions like the North Caucasus that mm-hmm. would be particularly ripe for um, for some sort of civil war. Maybe some places in the, in the Far East also. But that would be regional, and frankly, uh, Russia could probably, you know, some form of Russia would emerge that could handle it and retain uh, nuclear arsenal and things of that nature. Uh, it will be diminished, but it'd still, you know, we, you wouldn't necessarily have like a, a risk to um, loose nukes and things of that nature, but the U.S. would have to right. prepare for them. On the right. other hand, if Ukraine were to lose, if Ukraine were to be uh, seized by Russia, mm-hmm. that would be a pretty significant system changing uh, event for the U.S. Because that would be a, 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 a magnified threat from Russia. Mm-hmm. A threat that would continue um, with the potential risk to NATO members, and it would embolden other authoritarian regimes to to advance in the same way. 
recognizing that they would absorb some potentially heavy costs. But on the back end, there are ter territorial gains that you know would basically exist in perpetuity. Those would be existential th uh, a system systematic threats. And the fact that there's such this, this mismatch and a deep fear from U.S. policymakers that is hyper-focused on, you know, Russian collapse and the potential for, you know, manageable risk versus systemic changes is what's what, what I find deeply disturbing and really a, a true lack of vision from some of our leadership that doesn't that can't seem to comprehend that a, a Russian success and a Ukrainian failure would be far, far more damaging to the system than even a weakened Russia or Russia starts that starts in some way unravel. That's already happening and is beyond our control in a lot of ways. If Russia unravels now, I don't know if you agree with this or not. I mean, the original unraveling it from you know the late late 80s into the early 90s as Russia and the Soviet Union fell apart was an incredibly dangerous time. We had far fewer controls. We had far less transparency. We we had many, many fewer options, I think, than we do now. I think Russia collapsing today, it's, I'm sure there are some negative externalities from it, but I also think there are probably a lot of things from it that are not as bad um, and are more manageable than they were in the collapse of the Soviet Union back in the in the early 90s. I think that's broadly true. The one one kind of, you know, one element that's, you know, that kind of mucks up that calculation a little bit is that when Russia unraveled under Gorbachev, you had a benign actor and uh, really kind of no no major risk to uh, nuclear war or some sort of kind of crazy black, wants, uh, black swan scenario. With Putin or a Putin kind of successor in play, that that's the, the big delta. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, you're right. You know, our ability to con uh, manage the, the contingencies is far better now than it was back then. Final question. I'll let you get. I'll, I'll let you get back to uh, back to the real world. What do you see as if there is a Russian collapse? Where's your money on a replacement for Putin right now? In terms of who the players are, is it the, is it going to be the, the chef? Is it going to be somebody else? Is there is there a dark horse candidate you think might replace Putin as he as he goes? It's an interesting question. Uh, first of all, Putin's on. I hope Putin's on the enemy list. If not, let me. I, uh, let oh, he's, me, uh, he, by, by the way, he's about to be on the enemy's list. Right as we, right after we wrap this up, Vlad's going to make his uh, make his appearance. Okay. <laughs> Good. I nominate him. Is there a second? Yes. Call for unanimous consent. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay. So that's good. Um, that's an interesting question. I think the, the the fact is that it is far far more likely that the successor to Putin, as of today, is likely to be a like-minded hawk than it is to be a reformer, like this imprisoned um, mm -hmm. opposition. Well, it's not Navalny, no. I, yeah. yeah. So I think uh, it is going to be, it could be a number of different people. Uh, I think, you know, Prigozhin would like to believe he's maybe in the running. There are other folks like Shoigu, there are old folks like Petrushev, Petru the right. uh, head of the National Security Council. There, mm -hmm. um, there are, um, or National Security Advisor, rather. Uh, there are a number of different folks uh, that you know could end up being in the running. The problem is that I don't know if anybody really wants that. Uh, Putin has been pretty good about managing the different kind of, and those are all on the on the uh, 
um, seal of the key, the, like the power structure mm-hmm. side. Right. There are probably no no folks on the technocratic side that are, are viable candidates, but could end up being, you know, the, the guys based on the fact that, you know, the, the, all these different factions need to agree to whoever the next ruler is. I, I just don't think that Putin is at real risk in the in the in the next months, maybe even a couple of years. Okay. Um, at this point in time, so it's a little bit of an academic discussion uh, because a lot could happen between now and then, um, and then you know we'll just have another conversation and nominate another one of these nefarious actors to the enemies list. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Alex Vinman, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, where can folks uh, find you on social media? Uh, I'm still on Twitter at avinman.com. I'm on post. I think it's um, similar. And I think those are really the only two platforms that I typically use. Okay. Well, Alex Vinman, thank you, brother, so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Hey, so the last rant, folks, was placing the tankies, the Western supporters of Vladimir Putin and Russia's uh, war crimes uh, on the enemies list. And today, I think after this conversation with Alex Vindman, I just want to go back for one quick moment and cover the fact that Vladimir Putin richly deserves a permanent place at the peak of the enemies list. This is a man right now who is continuing to order daily attacks on civilian targets. These aren't even debatably military targets. They are apartment blocks. They are hospitals. They are schools. They are churches. This is a guy who has decided that the Ukrainian people's toughness and resilience can only be broken by by killing them and 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 burning their lives to the ground. Now, this is outside of the bounds of of the rules of war, of the conflict. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the kind of conflict that even in our ugly world we are accustomed to. And I don't think you've seen the end of the brutality of Vladimir Putin. I don't think you've seen even the beginning of the end of the brutality of Vladimir Putin. That's why, in my view, it is essential that we call this guy what he is. He's not Gorbachev. He's not, he's not, he's not some sort of explicable leader. There was a time when when a lot of a lot of westerns looked at Putin as a guy who was, you know, maybe he was corrupt, maybe he's kind of scummy, but at least you could understand him and he was going to be a deal-making kind of player. And they looked at the at the at the briefest period of cooperation after 9/11 and said, "Okay, well maybe we can maybe this guy'll be okay." Bush was wrong about him, Trump was wrong about him. Everybody's been wrong about this guy, you know, almost from the beginning. And the fact that we still aren't treating him as an international war criminal and everyone around him as international war criminals is astounding to me. But Vladimir Putin, welcome to the permanent peak right now of Rick Wilson's personal enemies list. Thanks again for listening to the enemies list. If you have any comments, questions, or if there's someone you'd like to hear on the podcast, hit me up on Twitter at TheRickWilson. Thanks again for the wonderful support you've shown the pod. We're growing fast. It really helps if you will share this with your friends, your family, and anyone else who, like us, is trying to save democracy. While you're at it, if you could rate and review the podcast, I would be very much appreciative. I know this is the sort of thing you've heard a billion times, please rate, review, like, blah, blah, blah. But you need to do it. It really does help us a lot. We are slaves to the algorithm, my friends. And if you do this, it will help get the pod out further. Anyway, thanks again for listening. I'll see you next time. And remember, whatever you do, 
stay off the list. 